There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just to be content and know that you're enough. And that, for me, is a work in progress. <laughs> and sometimes I don't feel worthy. Mm. Um, sometimes I'm the one dissecting my work and kind of criticizing it and blowing it to pieces before anybody else can. <laughs> and I think, well, right, I've, I'm done and I'm through with this. You can come and, you yeah. know, say and do whatever you like about it. And it's, it, it, it really is that struggle um, to kind of let go and surrender and, and know that whatever you've done, you've done your best mm. Um, and that's humanly possible and know that, that uh, you know, some it's okay. Like some people might not like it. That's okay. Some people will love it. That's okay as well. Mm. But what, that, that whatever you do, you're worthy of it and that, you know, you are enough. I'm your host, Natalie Drenovac, and this is The Modern Women, a show that seeks to share the stories and experiences of women that may be out of our line of sight. In today's episode, I sit down with Angela Sadecki, an Afghan-Australian designer, drawing attention to not only style through her own cultural heritage, but also revolutionizing modest dressing in the process. Throughout our conversation, we bring together two concepts that are rarely discussed by one person, human rights and fashion. I'm not sure about you, but I admit to having preconceived ideas and understandings, or lack thereof, about fashion for Muslim women, and Angela has completely shattered those. Before starting her label, Angela, who was born in Afghanistan and came to Australia as a refugee in 1989, began her career working at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR, in Canberra. From there, Angela worked with law firms that went to Christmas Island and provided legal representation to asylum seekers who arrived by boat. Angela then started her couture line as a creative outlet from the pressures of the work she was doing, with a strong focus on creating stunning and fashion-forward pieces tailored to the modest woman. Tune in for a beautiful and sincere conversation with Angela Sadecki, who considers herself both a modern and modest woman. And if you love this episode or any others, make sure you subscribe wherever you love to listen so you don't miss any upcoming episodes when they go live. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Natalie. Let's start with your rapid fires. If you could use one word to describe how you feel about yourself, what would it be? Oh, this is a tricky one. Um, probably just happy. Yeah? Um, yeah, it's something I aspire to be every day. So yeah. I think it would be just happy and content. 
Perfect. What do you wish you had have known when you started out? Started out? Well, it can be either your law career or it can be your fashion label. I think just that, you know, it's everything is going to be okay and that eventually you'll get to where you're meant to be. Sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes you set out to do something and it doesn't end up being what you want to do. So it's okay to take that detour. So that's what I'd probably tell myself. Perfect. Um, And how would you define being a modern woman? Um, Just being confident in yourself and being unapologetically yourself. I think that's really important. I think in this day and age, sometimes I do also feel the pressure to kind of justify myself for doing what I do, but Mm. it's important to know who you are and be confident in that and then just go into the world, um, hoping that everyone else will be happy with it. (laughs) And lastly, who is a female role model for you and why? Um, I think Amal Clooney comes straight to mind (laughs) for a number of reasons. Um, Yeah, but she's a strong woman. Um, and she stands up for what she believes in and she's helping um, women particularly. So I think that's admirable. I really love when people um, describe Amal Clooney and then they say, and her husband is an actor. Oh, okay. As <laughs> opposed to how people usually give him such big kudos and descriptive yes. and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and then he's just another and, and, actor. And, and George Clooney. <laughs> yeah, and this guy. <laughs> um, so like I was saying earlier, there is so much about your life that I'd love to uncover and talk about. Um, but I'd love to begin with you arriving in Australia in 1989 with your family seeking asylum from war-torn Afghanistan at just seven years old. Um, can you actually remember much of that experience at all? Um, the the journey to Australia, probably not so much. Mm. Um, I think because we were always in transition and moving from place to place. Um, and so when we arrived in Australia, we were quite young and I was the oldest of my siblings. Um, and a lot of it, I think, was just trying to navigate through life and kind of find your um, feet, basically, and, you know, get settled. So that's what I remember. How um, long did the journey actually take from when you from when you left to actually arriving? Um, it took a while because we left Afghanistan um, via the border to Pakistan. And then we were in Pakistan for a couple of months. Mm. Um, and then it's from there that we set out to come to Australia. So it wasn't... Um, you know, an, a, like a very quick journey. It's not just a flight away. No, not a flight away, no. Um, have you ever returned? To Afghanistan, no. Is there any part of you that wants there, to? Or There is a desire. Um, there's a yearning to go back. Um, only because I've met, like obviously my parents have talked about such wonderful experiences that they have had back home. Yeah. Um, and then I meet a lot of people who have gone to Afghanistan back in the 70s. Okay. And they describe their journey and, you know, how much fun they've had and just exploring the land. Um, and so there's also... It, because it's part of my heritage as well, there's that aspect. And so I do want to go back mm. to see, you know, where I came from. And I'd also like to take my boys to for them to explore the land as well and to yeah. see, you know, that they're part of their heritage too. So one day, hopefully when things settle down a little. Yeah. yeah. I feel like right now from everything that you see on the news, it's not exactly the most welcoming place. No, no, it's not. And then these suicide bombings that occur so regularly, um, it, it just when you go I've had my parents my mum went back a couple of years ago when my grandmother passed away Mm. and you're literally under house arrest really yeah and you only because safety is such a big concern Um, I think for the Afghans it's kind of become their normality like it's part of their life now if Mm. that makes sense it's their reality I can't even imagine living with such stress yes 
Yeah, and so they've kind of taken it on, taken it in, and it's like their life mm. every day. Um, and so, if when you when you're going from um, outside of Ag- Afghanistan into the country, um, you're s- security and safety conscious. And yeah. so, when my parents went back, um, they were just at home, and they would only go out for specific things to do. It wasn't like you go out shopping and you're out and about and exploring, and you know, n- none of that. No. So yeah. So Does it's, it- does it still feel like home for you? Um, to be honest, not really. Mm. No. Um, I find Australia is home for me. Yeah. Um, there's a sense of familiarity. Um, even when I go overseas sometimes and I hear an Australian accent, I have such – I can't describe it to you, but there's this strong pull yeah. and there's this connection. And I, I, prob- I don't know the person, but just that voice that I hear, it kind of reminds me of home. So I do associate Australia more with home yeah. um, than Afghanistan. I recently heard this poem and one of the lines that the gentleman says is that um, when you hear an Australian accent as you're traveling, there's just something familiar that you understand about each other. Yes, yes. Um, so how was assimilating into Australia culturally? Um, it was a little bit tricky. Uh, it was um, be as brazen and honest as you want to be. <laughs> so, so um, I was. Li- I think. I mean, you grow up and you kind of understand a lot more. And now, the older I get, the more I have a better. I have a better grasp. So I have a foot in the Australian culture, and I have a, you know, foot in the Afghan culture. Mm. So it, I think while growing up, trying to bring those two different cultures was. A bit tricky yeah. because I knew what each side was saying and I just thought, how do you <laughs> <laughs> how can I fuse those together? How can you fuse them or make each side understand each other? So that was something that I kind of had difficulty um, dealing with. But apart from that, I think there's certain things like, um, you know, swimming at school was a bit of an issue. Mm. Um, you know, my parents came from a landlocked country. There was concept of swimming was, you know… <laughs> non-existent obviously they had pools in Afghanistan but it wasn't embedded in the culture like it is in Australia Um, and so though and you know being in a swimming costume and things like that they were tricky and so it you know it it, were kids kind to you um from memory yeah I didn't have any issues um not that I remember I was fortunate in that respect um yeah so I had wonderful teachers and I had wonderful friends at school um Mm. and high school as well and even university I was curious to know, um, could you imagine doing such a, like a leaving your country now, considering you also have two young boys and having to go through the experience that your parents also went through? No. And this is what I um, reflect on a lot is my parents were quite brave. Mm. Um, and the fact that they, you know, left their home country, you know, everything was so familiar and they knew everybody. Um, if you walk down the street, you know, someone would recognize you or you went to the bank and someone yeah. would know you. Um, and so kind of, and then leaving your family and with four young kids. So my mum was quite young when she had me. She was about um, 19. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, she was quite young. And so then I was the oldest seven and there's like a two-year gap. Did you say eldest of seven? No, eldest of four, sorry. So I was oh. seven years old. For a moment um, yeah. there, I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, so, but she had four young kids yeah. and and. and quite quickly um, one after the other. Um, and so for, for I think it's very brave. It's very courageous for them to be able to do something like that. And for me now, like I, if, if I have to consider going to another country, I am thinking about so many things. Mm. And you want the stars to basically align for that 
you yeah. know, you know, journey to work. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I always admire them for that. I find often that we can um, criticize our parents so quickly without ever taking moments to really reflect on perhaps what they've had to do and achieve and go through to get to where they're at for what we then take for granted. Yes. Yeah. And it kind of just makes you like snap back to reality. Certainly. Yeah. And, and sometimes I have this talk with my younger brother. So I think he was quite small when we, he was about two years old or one year old probably. Um, and so for him, he doesn't have any memories of Afghanistan or yeah. anything like that. It's all Australia. And sometimes he does tend to get a bit carried away. And I say <laughs> to him, look, hold on, just, just <laughs> let's, you know, take, take a you know uh, take things in perspective yeah. and my parents came here they didn't know the language they didn't know the culture it's a completely different environment completely new land with new faces new people they didn't know anybody um and they've made a life for themselves you know and done all of that despite all of these obstacles and i said look at us we've been brought up here we've been educated here we're familiar with the culture we're familiar with the land and the people and i would say we're not as successful as our parents were. Oh, right, because yeah. of the courage and all of the actual yes. um, more emotional attributes yes. that they, uh, I guess, hold. Yeah, they had a lot of, you know, perseverance and, you know, being a it, – it's not easy coming with four young children and, you know – Wherever you go. Yeah. Um, and Not so, even going on a holiday with yeah, four young children is easy. Yeah, it's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. I have trouble with my two. So, you know, I think in that respect, I yeah. think they were far more successful and um, they, they were risk takers, um, but they did their best to make it work. And I think they've done a far better job than we have being raised in Australia. That's such a beautiful sentiment to kind of hold close to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I admire my <laughs> parents for that. I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did want to start by moving into your former career. So sure. you interned with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Canberra and provided legal representation to asylum seekers. Is it safe to assume that this career choice did have something to do with your personal experience? Certainly. Yeah, most definitely. When I um, set out to study law, um, there were two main reasons. Um, one was to make my parents proud because yeah. <laughs> they had given up so much and they sacrificed a lot for us. And so I didn't want them to think that, you know, their sacrifices went in vain. Yeah. Um, and so that was one part of it. And the other one was to help people who shared a similar experience to as I did as a refugee. And I, I think perhaps I was probably one of the more fortunate ones. I didn't experience life in, you know, refugee, in a refugee camp, living in a tent. Um, but still there is that level of, you know, you know when you're uncertain, you're unsure, um, those sentiments, they do um, – they, stay with they, you. Stay with you. That's right. They do. And so for me, I just wanted to make it easy for someone else yeah. and, and help them and guide them. And, you know, there's language barriers and, you know, obviously the cultural differences. And so um, it, it, for me, it was important. And I thought one of my life's purposes was to make it easier for other people and to help people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on following on from that, um, you actually spent five years after graduating working with law firms going to Australia's Christmas Island to provide legal represent legal representation to asylum seekers who arrived by boat. Now, I personally know, and I'm sure most people listening have heard the media cycle about boat people and especially the horrible conditions on Christmas Island. Um, could you talk to that a bit? And also specifically, I guess, the media representation on 
what they're saying and actually the reality of what people are going through. Yeah. Um, you get a completely different perspective. Um, and so I was fortunate enough to not only travel to Christmas Island, I went to the other remote detention centres across Australia, including Curtin and Weeper, and I've been to Darwin um, and Adelaide as well. And so when you are there firsthand, um, you know, interviewing these clients and mm -hmm. hearing about their life experiences and what they're going through, as well as the processes and the procedures that are involved, um, you you get a, you know, a greater um, understanding of what it's actually like, you know, just to make that journey to Australia on the boat as well. Um, and, and sometimes I feel like we're so fortunate in Australia, we're so far removed mm. from the realities of life and conflict abroad. Completely. Um, and so if, even for me, having a refugee background, it was still an eye-opener. Yeah. Um, and it made me very grateful for my life in Australia and for the opportunities that I've been given as well. Um, and so you hear clients talking about what's happened to them. I've had, I worked with families um, and I worked with, um, you know, women who were sexually abused and had children and were single parents and their partners were killed. Um, and so it is really, really heart-wrenching um, work. Well, that's actually something I wanted to speak about because it's more often that women are displaced at times of war because either men die as soldiers or for a multitude of reasons. Yeah. Um, and they're actually the ones who are left with the family and the kids to care for whilst fleeing. Yes. Um, how are we tackling these issues for women who are actually seeking asylum as a part of a family? Because I certainly find that the media portrays refugees and asylum seekers as those, you know, skipping the queue or doing something illegal as opposed to ever taking in the actual aspects and um, hardships that someone is going through trying to save their life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really difficult. And I think a lot of the clients that I had, they had spent a number of years in refugee camps or they have been outside yeah. of their home country in, a, you know, in another state and the treatment that they've received at the hands of that state has been deplorable. And so they've endured a lot of mm. torture and trauma. Um, and so sometimes it's the last resort. Sometimes they don't, they're in a country where they won't be given any um, hope for the future, any kind of permanent solution. So you, you understand why they would take the steps that they do to make those decisions, those mm. drastic decisions, to go somewhere to find safety um, and security, and especially for their children as well. And uh, like a, a lot of my clients, they their life, it was basically like they had written themselves off. Really? And they were like, you know, my life is basically gone um, and it's wasted, but I don't want that future for my children. Um, and you, ha you appreciate that. And I think once you have children as well, you really you put yourself in their shoes yes yeah and and you really and for me all the time it, I, I kept thinking it was it's so I could have very easily been on the other side yeah very easily um and so um I might have a soft spot um to say and my I might be a, a little biased but I think when you actually go there and you speak to the clients and ex, um, listen to their experiences firsthand it's it's something different and you get a completely different um, view and perspective of actually what actually you get to I guess you get to uh, an idea of what the two sides um, you know are, are talking about yeah um, yeah you bet, get a better, better grasp of it yeah what do you think we need to be feeling that we aren't towards their plight 
Um, I often find that it's not always about knowledge as much as it's actually opening our heart and even everything you're sharing. It's kind of like, how can we not look at another human being and think that they deserve as good of a life as I've got? Yeah, I think that's the key is I think having compassion Mm. um, and kindness. And I think that um, it goes a long way. Um, And if you have compassion just for another human being, you know, you you are more open, you're more understanding and, you know, you're not into the technicalities and the specifics of things. You look at that person as a human being and I always think that could have easily been me. Mm. And, and and then I want to, I always try to treat people the way I'd like to be treated. Um, and for me, kindness and compassion goes a long way. Like yeah. it, it's very close to my heart. Would you say that, I'm just going to say it very bluntly, I guess, sure. that the terrible treatment would be due to racism? Um, I guess the, you know, the comparison I'd have is if war broke out in the UK and they were fleeing, yes. would we really have such a problem? Look, I think part of it, you can't blame people as well. Like I said, Australia is so far removed from the rest of the world. Yeah. And so we don't have an idea of what conflict is. But I think sometimes when you have someone that looks like you, you tend to it's 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 i think it's just we're humans you tend to relate a lot better to them yeah and because you think that they have a similar upbringing to you as well or life to you um you yeah it's a lot more relatable to you but do you kind of go then well if we're all blind yes would we all be a lot kinder to each other Possibly, yes. You know, then I wouldn't be able to have preconceived judgments or notions about when I'm seeing another person in front of me. Yes, probably, possibly, yes. And I think sometimes just having that connection with someone. Mm. Um, I've had experiences where I've, um, I volunteer um, at the Asylum Seeker Centre in Newtown one day a week. And I've had people, I've, uh, I've met people who, not just there and not at the centre particularly, but I've had people who I meet that are quite standoffish when they first meet me. Why? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's probably they have a preconceived notion of me because I wear the hijab as well. Yeah. Um, and, and so for me, um, just talking with someone and making a connection, um, it kind of brings down all the barriers. Yeah. And You're I, actually seeking to understand each other. Yes, yes. And then, um, yeah, the, your background and, you know, where you've come from, your story, and that helps people. It kind of breaks that invisible barrier that's in between you and that, that other person. Yeah. And so I find I find them overwhelmingly the majority of the Australian population is very kind, is very compassionate. Mm. Um, and sometimes we get lost along the way. And it's more to do with, you know, rhetoric and what's happening in, the, in, in politics at the time. But overwhelmingly, I think Australians have such, an, uh, such a big heart. Yeah. And that's what, like, that's what I love about Australia the most. Um, and it's a lot of, the, even while we were growing up, my parents would always, always point out the positives, the generosity, the kindness, um, and how open people were. And, and so that's part of my Story. A story in my Australia that I like to – and look, there's times where you, when you feel hopeless and you see the politics and how people are being treated and it's very disheartening. And so for me to be going to the Asylum Seekers Centre, for example, it gives me hope and I'm connecting with people who have a similar um, 
view and perspective and who are compassionate and who want to help human beings irrespective. Mm. The idea of strangers coming together to help strangers that they don't know but they want that they ha- they want their life to be easier, yeah. to make it easier, it, that for me is such a great thing. And so if, if when times are tough and the political situation is not as um, ideal as you'd like it to be, being in those kind of places, it gives me hope. And then the generosity um, and the kindness, it kind of, you know, it rubs off. And Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, but... You know, we have certainly we have a long way to go. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say, so you've never really had any horrible experiences with racism or anything like that in Australia. I have. Okay. I have. I, I have. But and it, it is for me as a like for me because I am sensitive as well, and I'm one of those people. I'm a people pleaser, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I want everybody to like me. And so when I get that kind of reaction, I think, why? Like I. <laughs> You're like, let me just explain. Hold on, come back. (laughs) Let me try to win you over. And so when I get those reactions, um, you know, especially, you know, when September 11 happened and I was at uni, you know, you get the the stares and you get the comments um, and there's a certain, you know, when you get the treatment, wherever it is, Mm. it does. and, And then I think, well, but I'm Australian, like, I am like I'm part of this country. Like, yeah. why one item of clothing can differentiate yeah, you so exactly, much? Exactly, exactly, and and kind of question my allegiance, um, and or to think that I am part of that group or that those people who committed these atrocities, for me is is very hard to digest. It's also times. very stupid. Yeah, it is. It is such a it, simple way to label such a large amount of people. Yes. Um, yeah. I have a very, very close friend who is Muslim. She doesn't wear a hijab though. Um, and people will make certain derogatory comments about like about Muslim people and she'll be like, well, you know I am. And they're like, oh, but not you. Oh, you're the, yes. And I, she's I, kind of like, well, you can't, you can't just bundle us up yes. together and then just remove me because you now realize you're a good friend of mine and you're labeling me. Yeah. You're categorizing. I think it's a lot more for our own comfort. It's, it's, it, it, it's not justifiable and it's not, I'm not excusing it, but I think sometimes people like to categorize you in a certain you know, group yeah. to make it easier for you to kind of come to terms with things. I I I, I had a friend in art class um, who uh, you know asked me, you know, what's your background? And so I was telling her about my story, and she said to me, "Oh, so you know, the refugees are having such a hard time in you know in Australia, and you're one of the good ones. Yeah, you're the ones that are okay." And that kind of made me um, a bit upset. I thought um, there's a lot of good ones out there. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're not getting the, 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 the time um, and the coverage that we need. Yeah. Um, and so I, I always think there are far more accomplished um, refugees and um, uh, people from migrant backgrounds mm-hmm. um, than I am. saving lives and, you know, doing absolutely wonderful things, but just they don't get the opportunity to be able to, you know, tell their story. Well, that's – I wanted to say – I wanted to ask, what are we missing out on economically, socially and culturally by actually locking asylum seekers up for years, creating psychological harm as opposed to – I'm sure they'd have incredible gifts, talents that we could all actually learn from and that would – 
embolden our culture. Yeah. And I found a lot of um, people from refugee backgrounds, they're very determined and they're very hard workers. Yeah, because they know what they could go back to yes. and how horrible yes. it is. Totally. Yes. yes. And they just put their head down and just make it work. Yeah. Um, you know, failure is not an option. And and I see that in a, like in the, within the community, um, within like uh, the Afghan community, the Hazaras, for example, that have fleed persecution from Afghanistan, um, such hard workers, so much mm. dedication. They're so committed. They are just – the drive that they have, it, obviously, like you said, it's because they don't want to go back t- to where they've been and the experiences yeah. that they've had. Um, but th- we are missing out a lot yeah. in terms of the cultural exchange, the you know the, the, the abilities that these people have. And a lot of them are very educated. Yeah. They have – done really well back home and and for them to be able to come here and it's like for me studying for seven eight years and moving to another country and it's all like it's it's wiped out yeah they don't care they're like that's great fantastic (laughs) but they also but they also pigeonhole you and that you mustn't really have any talents or intelligence yes Yes. and it's not like that the majority of them are educated they're engineers they're you know um they're doctors they're they've they've spent a good amount of their time studying and you know trying to be be someone um and so it's it's heartbreaking to see that that loss of skill and knowledge um you know to just disappear when we now hear of you know for example syria and everyone fleeing what could we be doing better as a culture as a community to actually understand and accept and kind of i guess create space for others to become a part of where we live no matter where we are in the world yeah i think that like i mentioned before those exchanges and those connections that we make i think they're very important and so having those kind of in environments or spaces when people can come together and share ideas um exchange you know um thoughts or um you know, they've had uh, in the Western um, suburbs, they've had a lot of, you know, art exhibitions yep. where they've had refugee women kind of, you know, make something, design something. So you can see the talent coming through, whether it's through photography, whether it's through, you know, designing or stitching or whatever it is. So I think those kind of exchanges are really important mm. and they break down a lot of barriers. I always love when I hear someone say to me, um, something or other refugees taking my job. And I always tell them, if a refugee has been able to come here and take your job, that's on you. Look, you know, I think that is true to a certain extent. And I think there are certain jobs that Australians just won't do. (laughs) What do you like? Do you have an example? I, there, there, I mean, there are a lot of work. I mean, I've, I've met someone who's in the hotel industry and they'll say, they won't, you know, they won't want to do those particular yeah. tasks. They feel like, you know, it's not. It's above them. It's above them, yeah. Oh, sorry, I should actually say it's beneath them. It's they're beneath, above yeah, it. Yeah, they're above it, exactly. Yeah. That, that, you know, um, and so, uh, you know, and yeah. so someone else is there, they've got the will, they, they have no choice but to do it because yeah. they have to make it work. Yeah. They are in desperate circumstances. But then people are so quick to... Label, Take cry, swipe whinge them. about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you stopped being a lawyer um, and you moved on from that, do you still stay connected to this sort of work and change efforts? Um, I, I've become disheartened, to be honest with you, with the 
current state of affairs and how we are treating refugees. Yep. Um, and so there was a lot of despair for me. And, and going back and working, at volunteering with the Asylum Seeker Centre was one way for me to stay connected yeah. to to the work. Um, and in it, it, compared to what I was doing as a lawyer, it's a completely different experience. Okay. It's um, – there's uh, uh, being a lawyer, you, you have that one-on-one contact with the client, absolutely, but you're so focused on, you know – Making their, the case. Making the case, getting that um, application through, getting them a visa. Um, and so – you know the other you know the this the side of it where you make those connections and you know and you just see people and share stories um and that that opportunity i think i've been given at the asylum seekers center yeah. and i just work at reception and i greet people and say hi and help them wherever i can and i think that helps me stay connected to yeah. my roots um and that strong passion that I have for refugees mm. um, and yeah and it also gives me hope so I, I do recall when we first started talking you also mentioned um, how you like to speak to younger women and girls yes. because when you first got here there was no I guess role model for you to aspire into yes do yes. you do you find that happens just from meeting young women along the way or um, so a number of things I mean like being featured in Harper's Bazaar for example um, I grew up religiously reading Vogue yeah. and Harper's Bazaar. I knew when each issue would come out and I would duck down to the news agents and pick one and just go through it. Um, and I never saw in any of those magazines anyone that looked like me, mm. that resembled me and that I saw and kind of aspired to in a sense, you know. Can I quickly say, do you mean like you just because that you wear a hijab or just like you in terms of all features, skin no, colour, everything? Uh, all everything, yep. basically. Everything. Yep. And I know um, mainly, I, th- I think for y- for the younger generation, it's important to have that res- representation. It mm. gives them a lot of hope. And for me growing up, all I wanted was someone that looked or resembled something like me and yeah. said, you know, it's going to be okay. Yep. You know, everything will work out. Just put your head down and work hard and everything will fall into place. And so, because you have all of those, you know, those doubts, those what ifs, and I don't think I can do it and all of this stuff. And so in that respect, it's nice to have someone out there that says, look, you know, I've been through it all and mm. it'll be okay. Yeah. And you'll get to where you're meant to be. There might be some obstacles along the way, but it's okay. There definitely will be some obstacles along the definitely. way. <laughs> oh, most certainly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and so seeing myself in that magazine, it was surreal. Like sometimes yeah. it, I, I, I just think, wow. And I know like uh, hijabi models are more prominent now. Um, and, you know, we're seeing a lot, a lot of it in the media. Um, and so... For me, it was, uh, you know, a real pinch me moment. I thought, wow, I can't believe someone like me that looks like me is in a high fashion magazine like that. And ultimately what I thought, it wasn't this wasn't about me it was about women of yeah. all shapes and size and all backgrounds who are different who don't fit the mold um and who can look at it and say look if she can do it I can do it mm. like there's there's no reason not to think that you yeah. can't do it. Well, there's yeah. such an important aspect of you have to see yourself in the media due to the media being the, I guess, benchmark yes. for what is normal and yes. what's accepted and yes. what people like. Yes. If it's in there, then I can like it. Yes. Someone else is telling me that it's justified. It's okay to like, yeah, yes. totally. Yeah. And so when you hear, when you see, all you see in the media is that women who look like me, Muslims in hijab, um, 
you know, they're oppressed and they're downtrodden and they're badly treated yeah. and, you know, they nothing comes of their life. So it's nice to have that um, available. Yeah. And I've had... Um, I have had a few schools approach me um, and a few not-for-profit organizations approach me and um, ask me to speak to um, the young children. And so I've gone to Camden Park Public School and I spoke to the girls there. They had a women's empowerment event and so I was part of a panel of um, of speakers so I went there and it's just so lovely to see these young girls they're so innocent um, and you know it reminds it reminded me of my time back in high school and how far removed yeah. <laughs> it was from my reality but it was so lovely for the girls to come and approach me and say oh you know I'd love to be a fashion designer one day and how can I do it and just talking yeah. to them and speaking to them and just letting them know that you know <clears throat> If you set your mind to it, you can achieve it. Yeah. Um, and th- and for me, I think what I wanted to share was growing up, I would go in through these magazines and lo- look at pieces and I think, oh my God, I wish it was a little longer and I had, yeah. I had some sleeves and, you know, I would, I would love something like that. And so there's this desire. Um, everyone wants to look nice. Yes. Everyone wants to look pre- presentable and um, in confident. And so, for me, and I, um, I, I, I never could find anything. And so I told the girls, I said I never could find anything that met my needs. And so I just started designing for myself. And part of that is very empowering because you're not waiting around for someone else to do it to mm-hmm. meet your needs. You're you know, getting in there yeah. and you're doing it yourself. And so I think for the girls, and I told them, I don't have any, des- I don't have a design background. Yeah. I don't have any skills or training in design. And if someone like me can get up and say, look, I want to, I want, I want to meet my needs. And other women, obviously, who have, um, you know, similar background and who have those needs as well. It's, it's very empowering. Like there's, like for me, I never thought, now that I'm in the fashion industry, you realize how difficult it is. <laughs> but coming as an outsider, you didn't, you don't realize all the obstacles. And yeah. I think that's a good thing yes. as well. The ignorance um, can be bliss. bliss. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Could you um, actually unpack a little more about how you made such a pivot going from being a lawyer now turned into designing absolutely gorgeous um, women's wear? Oh, thank you. Um, look, I think it's, um, it was a gradual thing. Um, the first, the, the first, um, point the turning point I think was when I was getting married um and I just um wasn't happy with what was available and a lot of the time it was just the strapless dresses that were in style at the time Mm. and so if you wanted to make that modest um you just wore something underneath it and and made it work and for me I kept thinking crazy new design yeah (laughs) I just kept thinking surely there, there has to um, be some well-thought-out designs that incorporate sleeves, incorporate the length and does look stylish and sophisticated yet modest at the same time. And so I think that was where I kind of said, no, I'm not going to accept yeah. what's out there. Um, and so for my wedding dress, I, um, I went to a designer um, and she helped me and Grace Kelly's wedding dress was my inspiration for my wedding dress basically um and so for me um and then um i love vintage fashion i love the 50s and you know going through those images from that that time you see so many beautiful designs you know the shirt dresses the the taffeta gowns um 
the femininity of it all and that's where I take a lot of my inspiration from as well yeah and so for me it was basically not no one understanding what I needed yeah and for me I loved fashion as well um and it was just I think it probably was a form of escapism and I was um my I have three younger siblings that are um boys so I have three brothers (laughs) so it was tough trying to you know um be feminine um, while there was a lot of gym and sports (laughs) and, you know, all of that stuff, kickboxing or whatever it was that my brothers were doing. And so for me, I think it was um, a form of escapism too as well. It was something fun. Yeah, I also read that um, it was part of why you started it was that I guess the creativity allowed you to have a sense of escapism due to the actual work that you were doing and how, I guess – um, not depressing, that's not the right word to use, but just kind of harrowing and upsetting the yeah. work that you were doing. It was really was. emotionally charged work, yeah. It was a lot. Um, and we, w- we would go on task forces that were for three weeks at a time. And in that period, we might have had two days off. And wow. we had long days. Like we'd start from 7, 8 o'clock in the morning and we'd finish at 8 o'clock at night. Um, so there were long days. There were intense days. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah. So and you're like, I'll just also start to design my own clothing yes. on top of that. <laughs> I'll just add that to the mix, yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so I have this quote from you and it's, sure. well, I'm going to add a little, bit, a little bit, but fashion has helped you reconcile the two sides of your heritage. Um, before you just wanted to hide your uniqueness and blend in with people. Yes. And now you're learning to embrace that and your culture, embracing your heritage and you're proud of it. I mean, could you share a bit more on that in regards to what you wanted to hide versus now being so proud of and wanting to share with others? Um, what I wanted to hide, I just wanted to be like everybody else. Yeah. I didn't want to be different. Um, <clears throat> Do you mean in just in the simple way of like not having to wear a hijab or? Um, in that simple way and also like as a migrant, you know, yeah. you're, you're very different to the rest of the Australian community. And it's a lot of it is based on your physicality and your appearance, right? And so when I would meet people, um, they would say to me, where are you from? And I'd say Australia. But they'd be like, no, but where are you you from? Where are you? For me, that was my immediate response was Australia. I I think like, what are are they going on about? I am from Australia. Yeah, Australia. they're like, no, you don't look like you're no, from you don't around look here. No. <laughs> no, you don't look like it. Um, and, and so they'd say, oh, well, so where are your pa- parents from? And I'd say, well, they're from Afghanistan. Um, but for me, like I was born in Afghanistan, but I associate more with Australia than I do yeah. with Afghanistan in that sense. And I always wanted to be like everyone else. And I wanted everyone to accept me. Yeah. Um, so for me, being different in that respect, um, it was hard to come to terms to. Um and I wanted I wanted to be like everybody else. But now it's almost like I guess it's that you get to that. Well, actually, let me stop. Now, what was the? Well, I guess what was the age, or was there something within yourself that you kind of came to where you were like, actually, I'm going to embrace these parts of myself that perhaps I pushed away for so long. Um, I don't know if there was an age, but I think as you grow older, you become a lot more comfortable in your skin. Yeah. And for me, I'm also um a people pleaser as well and so I like would you say you still are I still am to an extent I am yes I I think that's probably so innate it's just a part of who I am my DNA um 
Yeah, so I don't know what point. I think gradually, like I said, as you know, you grow older and you learn more about life and you realise that even if you look like that person, you, life will still be full of obst- obstacles, obstacles and hardships, um, that no one has it easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it You kind of, you know, you're a bit more understanding in that respect and you're not so hard on yourself. Yeah. Um, and I was for a long time, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I was worthy. I thought no. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, did you just do a lot of personal work, or did you just keep challenging the notions that you weren't? I think I did a lot of personal work, and mm. I've learned to surround myself with people who like sh- sh- are similar to me in terms of values. Um, so, yeah, I think it's that, mm. and realizing that you know the other person, no matter what I do and what I say. I'll still be criticized. I still won't be liked. And I just have to learn to accept that. It, it, it is what it is. Yeah. I was sharing with a friend. Um, there is a final question that you will get to. Sure. Um, but I was sharing with her that one of the most common responses I've gotten from my guests is, you are enough. Yes. And I find that to be so interesting that we live in a world or we grow up thinking that we aren't. Yes. Or what are the re- what are the um, stereotypes or what is reinforcing that notion that makes us question ourselves? Yes. Because it, at the end of the day, it's just taking away time and energy that we could actually be put towards sharing more of our qualities yes. and our creativity and our uniqueness yes. because yep. you do find as you're sharing yep. – the more you do that, the more you actually find, you know, your tribe, your people exactly. who say, yes. actually, they're the things I want most about you. And, yes. you know, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a funny catch-22 yes. that happens as yeah. you get there. Yeah. Um, so I personally believe that what we wear says something about ourselves yes. and fashion is clearly your form of expression. Yeah. Um, could you share a bit more about your actual label for those who haven't yet seen your designs? They're only listening to this episode now um, sure. so they can understand what differentiates it. Um, a lot of it... Look, from, uh, going back to your previous question about, you know, um, navigating th- through the different cultures and coming to a point where I'm um, accepting who I am, I think for me fashion was um, – I took it as um, – for me as a form of celebration. Mm. And so um, from an Afghan heritage, Afghanistan has experienced a lot of war and destruction. So there's been a lot of negative press about the country and the people. And so for me, my focus was, and whenever I was designing, I was designing for celebrations, for special occasions, for happy occasions. And so it was important for me to emphasize the, you know, the nice thing, nicer sides and things about Afghanistan and the people, like the celebrations and the culture and the traditions. And so for me, um, uh, designing became a way of expressing that mm. um, and um, you know I, I focus a lot on you know brocade fabric with metallic thread just vibrant colors it's to bring that joy out and yeah. to focus on that more so and provide a different narrative um, and, and and so it's important for me and in terms of the fashion that's where my focus is to s- on celebration is it just for Muslim women no and surprisingly, um, about 70% of my clients are prob- are non-Muslim. Mm. Um, well, I actually, as I you know, scroll through your Instagram and I keep up to date with all of um, the new pictures, yes. I, I did like seeing that it wasn't. And I mean, I don't mean to sound 
that sounds so simple. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think your designs are stunning. Oh, thank you. Because when I first, I was like, they're beautiful. Because I think that there is a notion or a misconception that Muslim women don't wear nice clothing if they have to cover up. And you've completely blown that out of the water. Oh, that's nice to hear. It is. Look, I think for me, it's uh, inclusion is very important. Yeah. Um, Just in life in general. And so as part of my label as well, inclusion is very important. And for me, sometimes I get so overwhelmed um, without what I'm doing and, and sometimes it's exhausting work. But I always keep reminding myself that there's a bigger purpose that I'm serving than just myself. It's not just about me making fa- designs and selling them. That's not it. I think it's a lot more It's to give women of all backgrounds and shapes and sizes just hope. Yeah. Um, and, and empower them in a sense that, you know, I have a lot of friends um, who are qualified, who have fantastic careers, but they're not appreciated as much. And so for me, it's important to put that out there and for people to um, see something different um, and n- know that there are people out like they're out like me out there yeah. that are, you know, trying to do things to make a difference. And so for me, it's important for little girls um, and women um, to see this and kind of be inspired by it in a way um, that I'm trying to, like I try to be inspired a lot yeah. by the people around me, my family, my friends. Um, and so it, 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 it serves that bigger purpose. Do you find that um, it's important that, like for example, do you like to be labeled as a Muslim woman or do you think that you would rather just be called a woman or is it important that we continue to have the label to continue to seek to understand the perspective? Such a tricky question. <laughs> look, for me, I always, um, when I'm, when I meet someone, I um, I see them. Yeah. Out, you know, the physical appearance and all of that is it. It doesn't mean anything to me as such. I see the person, um, um, and so for me, in one respect, I would just like to be seen for myself as Angela. Yeah. Um, and then there's times where you know you you want to make those changes, and then there are certain terms that you need to, uh, you know, accept and embrace to help it be- society become more inclusive. So for me, there's no hard and fast rule I've learned. Yeah. You're like, I'm, I'm happy to just flow I'm between them. I'm just happy them. to float between them. I'm fine. Like, and it, it is what it is. I can't escape being an Australian Muslim woman or a Muslim woman or a woman. It's all, yeah. it's, it all, I, I identify with all of it. So yeah. I, I, I don't mind to be honest yet. I love that. Yeah. So to... F- I mean, I, sorry, I must say, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm really glad and I'm really grateful that you were so forthcoming with all of the experiences that you've had. I think it's really important that we should all seek to understand each other a little yes. bit more yes. um, as opposed to, I always think you should lean into what you don't understand yeah. as opposed to turning away because it's easier. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's important to, sorry, I cut you off there. No, please. It's important to build bridges. This is what I thought. I thought as as humans, um, we have we share so many similarities and we're connected conditioned um, by our upbringing, the environment, um, whatever it is to see other things apart from our humanness. Um, And so for me, it's just really important to build those bridges and for people to just see each other um, rather than, you know, what you've heard, um, what you've been told um, and just making those kind of connections um, one-on-one is far more 
you know better and i think for us as a as as a human race and as a global community i think the only way forward is just embracing each other and accepting each other and it's okay like you might not um embrace the lifestyle that i have or i choose to live that's okay and i i think part of being um you know in a, a part of life is just coming to that point where you say that's fine you do you and you do what works for you and I understand and appreciate that and vice versa and I think that's where we need to get to completely I always think that if I don't judge you it allows you no ability to judge what I'm doing yeah you know, if, yeah. you, if I say absolutely, you do you. I'll do me. Yeah. As long as as long as we can still respect each other, yes. I think is where sometimes um, the bridge starts to yes. crack. It's yes. when it's well, I don't understand you, so yes. you should do what I'm doing. And it's yes. like, well, we both will never understand each other. Then. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it leads me perfectly into my final question. Um, you're standing in front of a room of ten thousand women, and you're able to offer one piece of advice. What would you say? Um. It's going to come back to what you were talk. We were talking about before, um, just to be content and know that you're enough, and that for me is a working progress. <laughs> and sometimes I don't feel worthy. Mm. Um, sometimes I'm the one dissecting my work and kind of criticizing it and blowing it to pieces before anybody else can. <laughs> and I think, well, right, <laughs> I've, I'm done and I'm through with this. You can come and you know, yeah. say and do whatever you like about it. And it's, it, it, it really is that struggle um, to kind of let go and surrender and, and know that whatever you've done, you've done your best mm. um, and that's humanly possible and know that, that uh, you know, some, it's okay. Like some people might not like it, that's okay. Some people will love it, that's okay as well. Mm. But what, that, that whatever you do, you're worthy of it and that, you know, you are enough at the end. Like I think... I don't think that anybody should have the power to tell you that you're not worthy of anything. Completely. Yeah. So that that I think, um, and it's for me. I'm always working on it. So. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Hey everybody! Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Modern Women. If this content is delivering value to you, it would be so helpful and appreciated if you head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher and rate and review us as that helps us build this incredible community. And ultimately, that is what this is all about, building this community as big as we can to help as many women as possible. And all of your ratings and reviews truly help with that. And before I go, a shout out to Chunky Love for the original music and to Mr. Darren Lake over at Podpace for helping me produce this show for all of you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.